When Jesus was being led away to the cross, why did he turn aside and say to the compassionate women of Jerusalem who followed behind him, Don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Why would Jesus make such a gentle rebuke to the wailing women as he stumbled towards his execution? After all, didn't he appreciate their empathy? Wasn't he comforted that they were lamenting a great injustice? What did Jesus foresee that they couldn't see? And does this conversation, as memorialized in the Gospel of Luke, have anything to do with Bible prophecy right now? The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Darig. As Jesus was being led away to his crucifixion, the Gospels tell us that a large crowd followed behind him, including many grief-stricken women. But in Luke chapter 23, Jesus turned toward them and spoke to them like a prophet, saying, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, he said, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never gave birth, and the breasts that have never nursed. Then he said, they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us into the hills, cover us. And speaking his last parable, then Jesus added, For if these things are done when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? Well, theologians explain this saying in a paraphrase. If they do these things to me, fruitful, always green, innocent, holy, undying, though divinity, what will they do to you and what will be your fate? Well, what an awesome exhortation. Have you ever heard anybody preach on these verses? I haven't. And yet these words are right here in the biblical account. Awesome words uttered by Jesus along the Via Dolorosa, the way of sorrows. And even in such an incredibly stressful situation, Jesus was still quoting the Hebrew Bible. Isaiah 2.19 declares, Men will flee to caves in the rocks and holes in the ground, away from the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of His majesty when He rises to shake the earth. Jesus was also directly quoting Hosea 10.8. Then they will say to the mountains, cover us, and to the hills, fall on us. And furthermore, in the future, according to Revelation 6.16, when God pours out his wrath on a rebellious world during the great tribulation, people will cry to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of the one seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. But on the way to the cross, the Lamb of God was not filled with wrath. He volunteered to go to the cross to make atonement for the sins of Israel and the world. The beauty of the Savior in that moment of intense suffering after His rejection and horrible scourging and crowning with thorns 
was that he was still not thinking of himself. Instead, he was mourning for his own people on the way to the cross. Think about that. Jesus had the prophetic vision to see the consequences and the destruction of Jerusalem that would soon come in 70 AD due to their baseless hatred. And so he expressed his great pity and compassion for the victims of his own nation in that impending conflict. The Bible commentaries note that this incident with the wailing women on the way to the cross is actually the third time in the Gospel of Luke where Jesus laments the impending destruction of his people. The first time he lamented what was going to happen to Jerusalem is when he approached the holy city on his final visit. In the distance, as he saw the beauty of the city and his father's house looming before him, Jesus wept, saying, If you, even you, had only known on this day the things that pertain to your peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. He cried, The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on all sides. And that's exactly what the Roman army did. Jesus continued to prophesy through his tears, They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They'll not leave one stone on top of another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Jesus clearly foresaw that the Jewish people would be on a collision course with Rome that would end tragically because they rejected the kingdom of God that Jesus sought to bring them. Instead, the nation would tragically follow other leaders into a political and military revolt. The Jewish people would be put to the sword and scattered in a diaspora to all nations, lasting nearly 2,000 years. Jesus also had predicted in Luke 21:24 that Jerusalem would be trodden down under the feet of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Then a second time that Jesus lamented over the impending doom of Jerusalem was when his disciples were discussing the grandeur of the temple. But Jesus predicted that the temple would be destroyed so that not one stone will be left on top of another, he said again. When his disciples asked when this would happen, Jesus described the destruction of the city in more detail in his Olivet Sermon, which is recorded in the Synoptic Gospels. Jesus expressed his compassion for the innocent people who were going to suffer horribly. And he was especially sensitive to the plight and hardships of women. Jesus said how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There'll be great distress in the land, he said. Now finally, the similar statement of compassion that Jesus made to the wailing women as he was headed towards his crucifixion was his third reference to Jerusalem's impending destruction. He said the suffering would be so terrible that even barren women would be considered fortunate. While it was indeed compassionate and surely appropriate for the daughters of Jerusalem to weep, and one legend has it that one of the mourners wiped his face, nevertheless, Jesus knew that terrible sufferings awaited them. But all he could do at this point was warn them and express his deep sorrow over their impending fate. 
I've often meditated on the Lord's words to the women along the Via Dolorosa, his path of suffering, which is commemorated in Jerusalem's old city with 14 stations of the cross. And I'm so impressed by a Savior who had the presence of mind to continue to show concern for his people even as he was about to be crucified. His conversation with the women along the way of sorrows, as well as his prayer from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Both are examples demonstrating the Savior's heart of selfless love and compassion for humanity. Now let's fast forward about 2,000 years. The gospel has been preached all around the world. Many believers have entered the kingdom of God from the nations. Only a few tribes remain to be evangelized. We're now in the time when the Israeli nation will soon be in a position engineered by God himself to summons the Messiah, even King Jesus, back to earth to finish his messianic mission and to rule the world from the ancestral throne of his father David. In fact, Zechariah 12.10 informs us that the Holy Spirit will be poured out upon the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and they will mourn over the one that they pierced as for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. The greatest harvest of souls worldwide will occur once Israel has summoned King Messiah and also when the gospel is preached by the two witnesses in Jerusalem and the 144,000 Jewish evangelists during the Great Tribulation. All of these preachers of righteousness are described in the book of Revelation. Current events are happening so fast that watchmen are caught up in much prayer over what's coming next. But in order to stay healthy, vibrant, and in tune with a God of biblical prophecy and to ward off personal satanic attacks, it's increasingly necessary to add fasting to our prayers. In fact, in Mark 9.29, Jesus told his disciples that fasting is necessary when it comes to difficult situations. That teaching came about because Jesus' disciples were not able to drive out an evil spirit from a tormented boy, and they wondered why. So Jesus explained to them, this kind can only come out by prayer and fasting. So I want to talk further about this important subject of prayer and fasting as a combined spiritual weapon for the last days. The subject is very much related to the last days and to the perilous times in which we're passing through. You see, after we go through repentance, regular prayer, acts of reconciliation, and so forth, if none of these efforts has brought the answer that we're seeking from God, when you decide to add fasting to your prayers, for spiritual purposes, of course, and not to lose weight, then you feel that you've done the last thing that you could do, which you haven't yet done, to receive an answer from God. What you do in secret unto God, He sees, and He says He will reward you openly for it. You see, fasting gives hope to a claim on God for an answer or even for the supernatural to be released. 
Now, in the New Testament, we learn about a woman of God, a prophetess, who had a ministry of prayer and fasting. We meet this remarkable woman, Anna, in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus' parents took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord because it was time for their purification offering as required by the law of Moses after the birth of a child. So in the temple, the prophet Simeon prophesied over the baby and over Mary, and I've spoken many times in these broadcasts concerning the prophetic importance of Simeon's prophecies. But today I want to emphasize Luke 2, 36, which mentions another daughter of Jerusalem, the prophetess Anna, who was the daughter of Phanuel, which means face of God, of the tribe of Asher. I have the description of her by Mayer's New Testament commentary. He said, Anna was an interpreter of God. I like that. A woman with a gift of apocalyptic discourse. Now the Hebrew name of this holy woman is the same as that of the mother of Samuel, Hannah. So this prophetess, this interpreter of God in his seasons, bears the name of the mother of the founder of the school of the prophets. I'm glad to say also that according to the pulpit commentary, Anna was a preacher. Saintly gifted women are notable throughout the history of the chosen people, Miriam, Hannah, Deborah, Huldah, and others. And according to Ellicott's commentary, the fact is remarkable that we find a woman recognized as a prophetess at a time when no man is recognized as a prophet. It's interesting also that we're given the detail that Anna was from the tribe of Asher. That tribe, though belonging to the ten northern tribes that had been carried into exile, had not been altogether lost. Some, at least, of its members survived and cherished the genealogies of their descent. Luke tells us that Anna had been married for seven years, but now was a widow, 84 years old. And the fact that she had remained in widowhood was accounted very honorable amongst the ancients. And she didn't depart from the temple, but she served the Lord there with fastings and prayers night and day. You see, God never leaves himself without a witness. And with Anna always dwelling in the temple, she was always in the spirit of prayer and teaching others about the Lord. She was his witness at that time. She was like another aged saint of the type found in the Hebrew Bible who comes on the stage while Mary, Joseph, and the baby Jesus are in the temple, speaking thankful prophetic words concerning the Holy Child. And she continued to speak about the child Messiah to all who were looking for the redemption of Israel. She knew her people were looking for a Redeemer from Rome, but she spoke of the mission of Jesus, the Redeemer from heaven, the Redeemer from sin and sickness. She didn't preach a political redemption, but a spiritual redemption. And worship was her occupation and preoccupation. The excellent examples of both Simeon and Anna give courage to the elderly to remain useful and watchful in older age. Now in Anna, we have an example of a person raised up by God with a ministry of 
fasting. She's also a type of a watchman ministry because Luke testified that she served God day and night. This type of 24-hour ministry is described in Isaiah 62, verses 6 to 7. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have appointed watchmen. All day and all night, they will never keep silent. You who are the Lord's remembrancers, take no rest for yourselves and give him no rest until he establishes and makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Amen. Praying watchmen on the walls are the Lord's remembrancers. And Bible teacher Derek Prince of Blessed Memory often pointed out that the word remembrancer in Hebrew is from the same root from which in modern Hebrew we get the word for secretary. So we are the Lord's secretaries, His reminders. And we remind Him that He has an appointment to save Jerusalem and to make Jerusalem a praise in the earth. Now I'd like to share a gem of truth from one of my spiritual mentors, Professor Zacharias Fomum of Blessed Memory, whom I call affectionately the Watchman Nee of Africa because I'm also a lover of the books by the Chinese apostle Watchman Nee. Professor Fomum's writings are the closest books I've discovered with a similar spirituality to Watchman Nee. I first discovered Dr. Fomum's books when my husband and I were part of evangelistic teams in Africa. We became lifelong friends with the host of the French language 700 Club gospel program, and he introduced us to the books of Dr. Fomum. For many years in Cameroon, Dr. Fomum was a chemistry professor, but I was so impressed with his writings, his spiritual writings, that I once traveled for many hours to attend one of his meetings in London. I was surprised that such a great teacher had only a small group listening to his pearls of wisdom. But then it's really not surprising because he was not the kind of teacher who tickles ears. I'm forever grateful that I met him at least once and saw for myself his humility that's so apparent in his scores of books available worldwide on the internet. Professor Fomum wrote that fasting does something to God and to the devil is suggested by two weapons that the Lord Jesus has chosen for his warfare and his present ministry from the throne in heaven. Jesus has chosen the weapons of fasting and prayer even now. Before his death and resurrection, Jesus declared that he would fast between his ascension and his second coming. And he said to his disciples, as recorded in Luke chapter 22, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I shall never eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And when he had taken the cup at his last Passover Seder and given thanks, Jesus said to his disciples, Take this and share it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now on until the kingdom of God comes. Therefore, the Lord is carrying out his current intercessory ministry in heaven with fasting. His present fast is the longest fast of all time. Think about that. The style of teaching of Professor Fomum in some ways resembles the 
thoroughness of Derek Prince in explaining spiritual matters. In Shaping History Through Prayer and Fasting, Derek Prince wrote that there are some answers that we can obtain from God through prayer, but there are also some things that we can never attain from God without adding fasting to our prayers. In a similar vein, in a book on the prophetess Anna, Dr. Foman wrote that he considered prayer as one leg on which a believer can move and fasting as the other leg. He said it might be even better to consider prayer as one arm and fasting as the other arm of a soldier. Prayer is great, fasting is great, but prayer and fasting together are greater. They constitute a super weapon that demolishes the enemy and enhances union with our Father in heaven. There's another way of looking at the issue. Consider that these two weapons of our warfare, prayer and fasting, serve two different purposes. Could it be that one is for defensive warfare and the other is for offensive warfare? Could it be that the person who fasts and prays attacks the enemy with fasting and defends himself with prayer? Of course, a similar situation is given to us as an example in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 4 which describes the rebuilding of the walls of Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. Nehemiah said, When our enemies heard that we knew of their plans and that God had frustrated them, we all returned to our work on the wall. But the laborers carried on their work with one hand supporting their load and one hand holding a weapon. Now, as to why the prophetess Anna served the Lord in the temple with prayer, combined with fasting for about 60 years, as we're informed in Luke chapter 2, Dr. Foman explained that she apparently knew that prayer and fasting could contribute to helping her to build her relationship with the Lord. So she was willing to pay the full price to apply herself in prayer and in fasting for the deepest communion with God. And my thought is this, if Anna fasted and prayed to help to birth the appearance of the Messiah the first time around, should there not be a company of praying and fasting Annas who were looking for and hastening the second coming of the Lord and the consolation of Israel? Anna was a prophetess because she didn't devote her life to praying for her own needs and for the needs of her immediate family, but she took the assignment in prayer to pray the eternal purposes of God. She was focused. She was disciplined. In her service, she aimed only to satisfy the heart of God. She prayed for God's prophetic agenda concerning the first coming of the Messiah. Isn't it amazing that God Almighty has an agenda that He once prayed through now? How much more should we be praying and fasting concerning the Lord's second coming and hastening it? Of course, God can do many things sovereignly by himself, but some things he expects to be inquired of through intercessory prayer and fasting. He looks to intercessors to do the job of prayer and fasting for the true things that pertain to everlasting peace. Remember, during his first coming, Jesus was acutely aware that his people were set on a collision course with Rome. If Israel didn't receive him, if the people didn't repent, He knew full well that his nation would be revisited with a similar catastrophe 
as when the Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem and the first temple. Jesus could foresee history repeating itself. Only this time, Rome would be the destroyer of Jerusalem and the second temple. The commentaries explained that Jesus saw disaster coming and he tried to prevent it. He wept bitter tears over the fate of his people. The Gospels tell us that when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over Jerusalem, saying, Would that you even now had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, surround you and hem you in on all sides and tear you down to the ground, you and your children. And they will not leave one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. History proves that events happened tragically just as he said. Jesus wept because Jerusalem had failed to learn the things that make for peace. With Jesus as watchmen, we continue to lament over Jerusalem that the holy city will finally learn the things that make for true and lasting peace. That's our assignment. Well, the good news is that the gospel of Jesus, the true Messiah, still does have the power to save you today and your loved ones. But the decision is yours. You have to make your salvation sure by making a conscious decision to surrender your life to the Lord. The Bible promises that if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you shall be saved, healed, delivered, made whole, and preserved from eternal perdition. Throughout eternity, the nations, the saints, and angels will confess that Jesus is Lord, and even demons and Satan in hell will confess Jesus is Lord. That's what the Bible teaches. Meanwhile, how should we prepare for the Lord's soon appearing? Jesus told us solemnly that if we're not willing to forsake everything for him, we cannot be his disciples. It's high time to get serious with following the Lord, daily prayer, fasting, Bible reading, understanding the times, and watching earnestly for the coming of the Lord. Dangerous end times demand serious discipleship. So if you have any questions, I invite you to contact me on the social media or at our website, exploits.tv, where you can click online to receive our color magazine, Exploits. It's free. Just a reminder that the name Exploits comes from Daniel 11.32, which says that the people who know God will be strong, not weak, and will take action carrying out exploits. That means we're going to do the works of the Lord. I also invite you to download our free Jerusalem Channel app from your app store. And do consider coming with us on one of our Holy Land adventures and prayer tours. You see, when you visit Israel, the Bible literally comes alive. I believe every believer should visit the Holy Land at least once. It will greatly benefit your spiritual life. But it's important who takes you around, so do come with us. Well, until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem, I'm Christine Darg. Shalom and Maranatha.